The Civil War was fought in 10,000 places, from Valverde, New Mexico, and Tullahoma, Tennessee, to St. Albans, Vermont, and Fernandina on the Florida coast. More than three million Americans fought in it, and over 600,000 men, 2% of the population, died in it. American homes became headquarters. American churches and schoolhouses sheltered the dying. And huge foraging armies swept across American farms and burned American towns. Hey folks, welcome to this week's episode of The Brick Pit. Uh, this is Adam, and uh, you are joining us in the middle of a riveting episode uh, talking about Civil War movies, and uh, let's pick up where we left off two weeks ago. Uh, Jason, I'd like you to talk about your second movie. Because <laughs> <laughs> only, only because I'm also familiar with it, and I'd like to talk about it and make sure we get to I've it. I've never uh, seen this film, so... Okay, it's a 1959 John Ford movie. Uh, so, of course, John Wayne is not right. <laughs> Literally, that's what I was saying. Also, based off of something that actually happened during the, the Civil yeah. War, and that is the Horse Soldiers. We are a band of brothers, and they do the sword. Fighting for our liberty with friends of blood and joy. Make way for the new screen adventure from four-time Academy Award winner John Ford, The Horse Soldiers. Make way for the screen's two top stars in their most outstanding roles. John Wayne and William Holden, riding hell-bent for glory in the most daring adventure that ever thundered across the screen. way for a rousing adventure story that relives history's most daring give em hell raid and the two hellions who rode side by side to lead it. Make way for the horse soldiers. When Ulysses S. Grant was going to take siege of Vicksburg, which was a, a turning point in the war for the North, right. also a, a gigantic morale destroyer for the South, I think, because uh, Vicksburg, I believe, surrendered on July 4th. And so they didn't celebrate July 4th for almost 100 years in Vicksburg after that. Because it was the sign of lost of the war. Yeah. I didn't know that part. That's interesting, actually. but. Yeah. This is a uh, this is what 1959 1960 somewhere there right yeah so uh, and this is actually told from the aspect of the northern soldiers and it's uh, John Wayne is leading a, a group of men from Tennessee down into Mississippi to come up behind Vicksburg and to assist uh, Ulysses S Grant to to destroy all the supply lines and everything that would go into Vicksburg to assist in the siege of and loop, yeah basically loop back around and connect with the Union Army in Baton Rouge and 
it was a, a feint essentially to draw the Southern armies away and to engage them as they were essentially chasing this rogue unit through the South that was deep in behind enemy lines. The story is that John Wayne's character is, uh, I believe Colonel Marlowe is given this task and he has to assemble his, uh, a group of men quickly. And I think like he gets a Sergeant that's not his, that's a bit of a lush and is kind of upset because he was on leave when they, they drug him off the train. And the other star of this is William Holden, who plays a doctor who is assigned to the Union. And they clash constantly because he is the the classic doctor who wants to save everybody. Yeah, save everybody. And, of course, there's also the, the clash of him trying to use science and, you know, uh, germ, germ theory. And, yeah, you're crazy. There's no such thing. <laughs> yeah, just the, a, a great distrust of uh at the time, modern vaccines. Medicine. I don't have none of that. Tell me there's little creatures what lives in my blood. <laughs> you know, as Josh alluded to earlier, you know, not everyone's a hundred percent on the right side of this because there is a point when they're going through, and their order is to you know destroy contraband and all that kind of stuff. One of the first stops they have is a house of, you know, a, a black family, uh-huh. you know, a lot of children, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, a woman's giving birth inside the shack. And of course, William Holden goes to, to help her, even though John Wayne wants to push forward because they're, they're on a limited time schedule. But one of the union soldiers refers to the, the children as contraband children. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is historically accurate. They eventually meet up with a woman who's left alone on her plantation and her, uh, enslaved help or well, another lady is with her. They talk about the fact that they are supposed to, you know, destroy their mission is destroy all contraband, and all that kind of stuff. And the, the enslaved woman looks over. That's like, me. Yeah. That's me. Destroy or capture is what he says. Yeah. yeah. So you add in just the, the tension between Holden and, and John Wayne, and then they have to take this woman prisoner. Cause she hears like their entire plan to move through and to like, you know, draw attention away. And then that they're, they're going to try to escape to Baton Rouge because it is controlled by the Union Army at that time. She's listening through the smokestack uh, in the chimney or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's the- yeah. And so they have to take her and, you know, you get the, the whole, she's now a prisoner of theirs because they can't let her go and let her tell everyone what's going to happen. Colonel, prisoner, I'd like a word with you. Yes, Miss Hunter. I'm not here to complain about what you did. It was your duty as you saw it, and you did it. I'm sorry you had to break your word. I gave my word not to try to run away. I didn't give it not to cry out for assistance. I suppose there's a fine point there, but I'll have to ask you to give me your word on that, too. I'd do that, here and now. I suppose when the time comes to testify against you, I'd be handicapped with a broken jaw, wouldn't I? I'd say so. Is there anything else, ma'am? One slight item. My constant companions there. I don't know how it is up north, of course, but down south there are times when southern women feel the need for privacy. You too. We're respectful, real respectful, sir. You told us it's all right just as long as we can see the top of our head. You told them that. Well, uh, other Then there's one more item. Just like the the culture class and all that, because 
the Union Army is the invaders in the story. You know, they they are coming through the Confederacy. They're they're setting you know cotton crops. Yeah, and fire. houses and they're, buildings too. I mean, they're burning the whole damn thing down. You know. Yeah. And there's a, a good scene where they meet a small Confederate contingent in this town, and William Holden knows the guy who was in charge right. there because they went to West Point together. You know, he he wants to act like they're still friends and everything like that. And the other guy was like, "No, you're you're on the other side now." Yeah, he's trying to get information about what they're doing and everything, and realizes their actual plan and everything. But it's it's not John Ford's best film, but it's still a decent film. Yeah, and you know, it's I mean. So for those who may or may not remember some other John Ford movies that you might know are you know, like Stagecoach or The Searchers or The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which we've talked about in other episodes. It's it's a solid movie, I guess. It's a yeah, like, I think it's not John Ford's best work, but it's but, a solid movie. Know, it's Ford a, was, if nothing else, was consistent. Yeah. Yeah. He has movies that rise above, but for the most part, they're like you know what you're getting. It's it's very meat and potatoes. It's all they're not bad films. Like you said, there are films that are not his best exemplars, but, but it's still yeah. yeah. Like I said, it's still you know it's still a decent meal. Well, as you say, a lot of times uh, Ford also would make films simply to have the ability to make another film. Yeah, that's really true too. Yeah, that's part of the life in the in the in Hollywood, you know. Yeah, but I mean, that's that's um, all the smart. You do the big budget. Film, so you can do the indie film later. <laughs> you know, so there's a couple points I want to talk about with this movie, which uh, for all of our films is the historical accuracy of them. And there's two points to that. One is, is while this is not entirely historically accurate, and I'll talk about that in a second, but what Ford does really well is that he utilizes the Civil War. It's a character movie more than, it, in my opinion, the Civil War is the backdrop to the film. There are battle scenes, and the yeah. conclusion of the film is largely driven by a battle between the soldiers, but more or less the majority of the film is really just a character yeah. film between John Wayne's character, William Holden and Acosta towers, uh, who is the sort of hostage slash captive. I'll, I'll ask your opinion on that part of it in a second, Jason, because I really want to get into, I think this suffers from a problem. Go ahead. We'll talk about it now. I think this suffers from a problem that a lot of, um, other movies we've talked about. There is no, no good reason for Constance towers to be in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, John Wayne. Can't, John Wayne takes this woman hostage, <laughs> travels all, travels yeah. all over the South with her, who she legitimately and and for for good reason hates him. Tries to escape, and then he professes his love to her at the end of the film in this weird. Yeah, it makes no sense. And it's very yeah. like I don't know how people. I don't know how sentiments at the time were. But if you watch this movie tonight, you're like, okay, <laughs> whatever, John Wayne. Like, <laughs> it feels very much like the studio is like, gotta have okay, women yeah, in this movie. We have, we have a love interest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's, and I think there was also like, uh, Holden was very difficult to work yeah. with at the time. Well, in general, uh, yeah. He was famously uh, for that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, this was before Wayne did the Alamo. So I think he was more concentrated on getting ready for that yeah. film. That he was making this. He kind of phoned it in on uh, this. I mean, it's not that he was acting was bad, but he. Yeah. there's a couple of scenes that stood out to me. First of all, at the time this was made, I don't think there was any man in film who could take a punch and give a punch on camera as, as good as John Wayne could. There's a scene where William Holden and John Wayne get into a fist fight 
and it's meant to be a comedic highlight because Holden says, "What are the what are the rules of this fight?" And John Wayne, as he's unstrapping his as um, what's the word for the suspenders, suspenders. Yeah. he he's like, you know, make them up as you go. And as he's unstrapping those women, I'm just dexing. <laughs> he said, "He's like, you said there's no rules, you know." And that reminded me what was entertaining about that because John Wayne falls over a log, and it's kind of a pratfall moment. Yeah, and it reminded me of all the times I've seen John Wayne get punched in the mouth. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, that's really just, that's like, he's underrated for his ability to sell a hit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, that was just a good. Hulk Hogan ever did. That's, yeah, man. It, it was, yeah, I mean, that's why he's making here's, the big bucks. Here's my um, contribution to the John Wayne coming. This sure. is me coming from left field. Uh, so the, the John Wayne stance, you know, that kind of one hip side of the hip is lower than the other side. Yeah, that yeah. is that is called yeah. the lazy S. So, uh, what's his name from the Doors did it as well, and Jim Morrison, Jim Morrison, and the yeah. the statue of David. It is in the same pose. It is a very like in the art world that is like a thing. And he it was like the gold ratio. It's one of those things that yeah, unifies all art. Um, <laughs> but but I think he he naturally did it. But it, it's considered like very masculinely attractive to have that, that huh. lazy s stance. So I'll try that tonight, and I'll report back results. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, can, I can tell you it works. Uh, having spent time <laughs> with your wife, uh, <laughs> oh my wife, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, yeah. Here's a funny scene. Uh, it, it's kind of funny and tragic at the same time. When they're approaching this town, there's no Confederate soldiers there, but there is like a military academy. Right, yeah. They convince the commandant of this military academy to bring the kids out to fight the Union soldiers. Yeah. yeah. And you know, there's this bit where they're they're walking toward the battlefield, and you've got the the drummer boys up front, and this woman comes up, and she's like, "Please, you know, I've lost my husband and my older sons. He's the only thing I have left." And so the guy's like, "Okay, you're dismissed." And she drags him away, like he's kicking and screaming, and she drags him into the house. And the next thing you see is him is dropping drum, his yeah. drum out of the window, and him dropping down to go to the battle. They they played it lightheartedly, and of course they. They don't engage the kids. They instead, there's also uh, a small artillery battery of Confederate soldiers, and so they attack them and just like retreat at the same time. And of course, the kids are like screaming, "Yay! We we beat the Union!" So the the film critic Sarah Michelle Fetters talks about this scene in her review of this movie, and I think she does a really good job because she's talking about the juxtaposition of hu- like you just said, the humor and the sadness, and she says. Um, like almost all the laughs contained within the film, it's tinged with an underlying layer of unrefined sadness. This is the Confederacy nearing its end, and Ford uses this image of these youngsters proudly marching to drive this point home. This is what the rebels are left with as children. It is funny in context, but it's also driven home by sadness. And John Wayne's character, you know, the the colonel makes the decision not to fire on these kids. Her shooting at them. I mean, mind you, they're doing stack formation. Uh, field, yeah. field exercises shooting at the the Union soldiers. In fact, I think they hit two people. Yeah, they're, they're actually having to duck down stuff. behind yeah. logs to keep from getting. Yeah, and uh, and again, I don't I don't know specifically if that's historically accurate. You know, there really was a real colonel named Benjamin Grierson 
1863, and he wed he did really did lead a, a unit of soldiers uh, from Lagrange, Texas, down to Baton Rouge. Lagrange, I'm Tennessee. Sorry, Lagrange, sorry, that's it's my brain was faster than my mouth. Yeah, Lagrange, Tennessee. It was widely considered one of the more significant maneuvers of the of the southern part of the Vicksburg campaign. I think Sherman like thought it was like the most brilliant strategic move. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. There are some things that are that are not historically accurate in this movie, but I don't know that they're necessarily dispositive of, of relevancy. For one example, is that throughout the film, all the soldiers in the in the North, the whole point of this is they're driving so far deep into Confederate territory that they don't know how they're going to get back into safe passage, right to to Union controlled areas, and so the constant threat is you're going to get captured in since Andersonville. I know Josh probably knows a little bit about Andersonville. I actually went toward Andersonville. Josh was, he was there. I am <laughs> Andersonville. Um, That's my Judge Dredd prequel. <laughs> <laughs> so at the time this this actually happened in the real world, Andersonville hadn't yet been established. Uh, but then the movie, they're constantly like, oh, you're going to go down. Yeah. Um, but I want to I use this as an opportunity to talk about, for those who don't know, so Andersonville is located outside of Macon, Georgia. Uh, you can go visit the location of where it was today. And if you happen to be within driving distance of that, I think it's a, yeah, I've been to dozens and dozens of national parks and historic sites and battlefields. And I've been all over Europe and stuff. This is one of the places that really impacted me uh, in a way that I didn't anticipate when I just showed up. Andersonville is a harsh place. There's a film based on Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, yes. Andersonville was notorious prison camp. The two most notorious, and the, like the Confederates were not kind to the capture. At all. So there was Andersonville yeah. and Libby Prison in Richmond. So my ancestor was in Libby Prison, and that's where they died. But those are the two places you did not want to go. So, and I think the Andersonville film is pretty historically accurate. It is. Well, and, and just as I didn't they have to like reshoot a whole bunch of that because they like something screwed up, like they damaged the film or something. Yeah, I think I recall. I vaguely recall that. Yeah. So if you go, there's there's a couple of things that stood out for me. One is the cemetery where they buried all the the dead prisoners of war, and it's massive. I mean, it's just it's just massive, and they're all mass graves. That's the crazy. Each each grave marker represents like a hundred people, and there's just acres of. Them. Like it's crazy how many there are, and the other thing that stood out to me is they've rebuilt, uh, they've functionally rebuilt a replica of what it looked like at the time. There's yeah. the there's you know, I don't know twenty foot high fence that 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 establishes the perimeter. Outside of that are the guard towers on each corner and halfway through each wall, and it's, this thing's not that big. It's really not. And inside, pe- the the prisoners were made to camp on the ground with whatever they could find mm-hmm. tarps old clothes whatever they could find to sleep under so they were essentially exposed to the elements and then about 15 feet in from the wall was basically just a single post that had it was a, a post fence with with just the top on it with just a just a like a rail you would lean on, like a horse hitch essentially and they called that the killing line mm-hmm for the uh, Union soldiers who were trapped in this prison, who were starving to death or exposed to the elements and wanted to die, all they had to do is walk across the post line, and the guards would shoot you. Before you, as soon as you crossed that line, they would just shoot and kill you, and they'd leave you there. It has 
big like concentration camp vibes. Like if you've ever been to Auschwitz or whatever, it's it's it is not a good place. There's no. It's a weird vibe when you go there. It's it's not pleasant, and the the gravity of it's incredible. The site of Libby Prison. Libby Prison was like dismantled and brought and rebuilt like somewhere in the north. Like for and, and oh, I think since then that that's been destroyed. But now, crazily, it is the home of a Holocaust museum. Oh, interesting. Oh, what an interesting. But yeah, I think I think that that is interesting because there are there are. Not, there are parallels to it was you know the they were not there was no Hague there was no UN conventions it was you just treated your enemies as crappily as you could without killing them because the only reason they kept them alive was for bargaining chips mm-hmm. and they didn't need all of them they just needed a handful of them to trade for their soldiers yep um, it was just the the way it was um, you have anything any final thoughts on that movie before we move on Jason no I think we've pretty much run that into the ground <laughs> The last movie I want to talk about uh, is Glory. A million loyal readers want to know what happens when the men of the 54th see action. Ain't no dream. We run away slave, but we come back fighting. Million and one. Marching is probably all they'll ever get to do. And they gotta know that nobody's gonna let them fight. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> let you take your regiment out to fight. Yeah! When? Just as soon as I can write the orders. I think is is a as a culturally significant film. Mm-hmm. It was also a very huge part of the zeitgeist at mm-hmm. the time too. When it yeah, yeah, out. no, that's absolutely true. It's a movie by Edward Zwick. It, it revolves around the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry, which was one of the first all black regiments, which fought for, obviously for the Union. What it's essentially doing is it shows their for, the formation of the unit as an experimental unit under a program from Abraham that Abraham Lincoln devised. Which actually, uh, the the result, uh, you know, kind of prophesying the end of the film here, but the result of the successes of this regimental unit of all African Americans, what, what what came out of that was a opening of the ranks to other African Americans to join the Union forces, and by the end of the war, I, th- I I don't have the number off the top of my head, but it's it was 
over 180,000 black soldiers volunteered to join the Union Army, President Lincoln at the time credited that with the turning of the tide mm-hmm. of the war. It was well, it was the numbers needed so to 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 win. The, the interesting thing about that, though, is you you know you say say all African American, but the reality is the officers yeah, were in yeah. fact so I was going to get into were that, not yeah. black, which shows you the complicated nature of yeah. You know, it's like and it gets like, into that. Yeah, like you're not. Well, you can go and fight, but you can't lead. In that, and they were paid less. Yeah, and they were right. they were they were signed up at thirteen bucks a month, same as white soldiers. But then when payday came, the army, the under Stanton, Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War at the time, they decided that black soldiers were only worth being paid ten dollars. This was mentioned both in the film Lincoln, and of course, it's, mm. it's a big plot point and gory as well. And it wasn't till much later that that was rectified, and they they were paid equivalent wages. And given older weapons, yeah, yeah. inferior equipment, right? You know, well, used yeah. shoes. They would they would give them the shoes off of dead Confederates, for example, and, and, and stuff. That's, you know, and you know, I think that's part of the the lesson of history, especially of the Western culture in the United States, that there is this. You know, we like to think all men are created equal, but it's like, well, yeah. except for you. And, yeah, uh, you're, and, and even among even among the northern minds of right, the time, right. it wasn't even, like even the most enlightened yeah. were like, "Well, but you are a woman, so um, yeah, we'll we'll free the enslaved people, but we're not going to pay them white people wages." Right. That was the concept that they. Well, it's it's very much the line from Planet of the Apes, <laughs> you know, uh, all apes yeah. are created equal. Well, some are, seem to be more equal or, than others. Yeah, from Animal Farm originally, that's and, what that's from. But yeah, yeah. But I think like Glory does a good job of acknowledging that prejudice and the complicated and yeah, using it to highlight like in a lot of ways like how those soldiers making those sacrifices were. It was a fight for their survival, well, literal survival. Well, yeah, you but know? but also like it shows that, that how much further they were going, you know, yeah, because yeah. because they not only did they have to overcome the the physical battle and the battle uh, against slavery, they also had like well, even where I'm free, where I'm the free, I'm still I'm side. still yeah. getting yeah. paid ten dollars versus thirteen, and that you know something that would echo throughout history. Again, these these are things that are. That don't go away, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. that, like this right. is, yeah. it is a it, it is a constant it is a constant struggle. It's yeah. systematic. So you know the other element of that is that they wouldn't allow these soldiers to be officers within the Union Army. And as far as I know, Josh, you can correct me here. I don't think that during the Civil War they were made NCOs, but I don't think there were actual officer officers. I believe that is uh, correct. Uh, you know, the main character is Robert Gould, who's a colonel. Robert Gouldshaw, sorry, who's a colonel, who's played by uh, Ferris Bueller. Uh, right after, I mean, this is what? This is 1989? When did Ferris Bueller come out? Like 86 yeah. or something? Yeah, I think it's really weird when he stops and talks to the camera. <laughs> before or after he committed That's- vehicular homicide. <laughs> That's a good question. Maybe this was his That's- redemption film. I don't know. But, That's how I delineate um, the films of Matthew Broderick. I mean, this is like right off the hills of Ferris Bueller. So he looks like Ferris Bueller with a goatee, uh, which is my one like real criticism of this movie is that this is the wrong person to cast in that role. But, it, but at the same time, I mean, there were oftentimes, you know. No, no, no. Not because of age or whatever. Just, just because, because he was, was so. Ferris Bueller. 
because it was Ferris Bueller. Well, it was he, just too he was trying to break out. I think that kind of works toward the concept of because they weren't going to put an important officer in charge of this unit. Yeah. It, it is considered, you know, well, let's just whoever's most expendable, who's not going to make any difference, and just just give him this this unit of all black. You know. Yeah, it was it was considered a. I, I don't want to say a joke, but it was like an experimental. It wasn't taken seriously by the actual, you know, front of the line. And and, I, and to be semi historically accurate, you kind of needed somebody youngish to do it. You know, I, I and he had. He to, did, I think he did a fine job. I um. I it. You know. I didn't. Well, <laughs> here's the thing. He is going toe to toe with Denzel like freaking Denzel Morgan, freaking yeah. Washington, and Morgan Free. It's yeah. like he More, yeah. he was outclassed. But uh, to be honest, there ain't a whole lot of people like that's yeah, that's that some heavy that's some heavy hitters. <laughs> So yeah. the fact that he, you know, and and he was mostly known for comedies and lighter films and stuff. So, who would you get? Right? I mean, so the, at the in 1990, Steve you know, Ulrich. I thought about the. Yeah, I mean, you had like Bruce Willis, who was too actiony for this. It's a different kind of movie. Too you cast him too, Tom, Cru- Tom Cruise, no. who was younger at the time. I mean, you know, yeah. Gavin McLeod. You, know, you know, you could have got Joe Pesci to do it. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm gonna be. I'll be laying in bed tonight, going like, "Who would I cast as the? Who would I cast?" It is a hard because most of the youngest actors who could play this role were also comedians or in comedies mm-hmm. at the time. Robert Downey Jr. probably could pull it off. He put. He tried out for this role. Believe it or not, he was the second choice. So you're right on the money with that. Like, uh, I and I think he would have done Produce movies. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. No, no, we, um, we don't. We don't want. Uh, we don't want Rocky Dennis here being in uh, Back to the Future. He ain't gonna work out. You're gonna go back and kill Hitler's Eric, mom. Is what you're gonna Stoltz. do, right? I'm just gonna fire Eric Stoltz on day one. Save, save a bunch of money. So under uh, Ferris Bueller's leadership, you know the the 54th Massachusetts. The bulk of the film is him training this unit of former enslaved folks and uh, free sold free people from the north. One of which is one of like his best friends growing up, right? Who's never experienced slavery, for lack of a better word, he's soft, right? And so they bring in this Irish sergeant to kind of whip these guys into shape. And there's a lot of like that. What's fascinating about this movie is there's a lot of parallels to the life of a soldier and the life of a slave, in a way that, for example, Denzel Washington, uh, quote unquote, runs off to go get some shoes because they're the union army won't send them fresh shoes for these soldiers. Uh, and his feet are all torn to pieces. And, uh, that, and they're that, that, literally- that had less to do with, with race and more to do with lack of supply. Like that was, that was well, that was, so that's that was the claim of the quartermaster. Historically, that was an issue on partially sides. true. Yeah. 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 So Denzel runs off and he gets caught and he's, he's treated as a, uh, going MIA. As a deserter, right? Yeah. Absent without leave. And so they whip him with a cat of nines. Matthew Broderick's character has a a, a lieutenant who's an old buddy of his. He's like, you can't whip these guys. Like, you can't do that. And he's like, oh, well, the hell I can't. And so they do. And this is before Matthew Broderick, of course, knows that the reason he ran off is because he doesn't have shoes. He's trying to go find some shoes in town, basically. They whip him, you know, essentially the way a slave would be whipped in 
southern states. And then Denzel makes the comment, you know, it's just the same here. It's just a different kind of master functionally. Mr. Rollins. This morning, I, I... It would be a great help if I could talk to you about the men from time to time. That's all. Shoes, sir. Men need shoes, Colonel. Yes, I know. I've been after the quartermaster for some time now. No, sir. Now. The boy was off trying to find himself some shoes, Colonel. He wants to fight. Same as the rest of us. More, even. It's really bad for morale and, and whatever, but that's the... That's the sort of nadir of, of the movie. And then Matthew Broderick realizes the error of his ways and then goes and changes the, the tenor and then they volunteer to fight for combat. Uh, that is something I, would, I think would be interesting to explore is the uh, speaking of those parallels between like conscripted soldiers and then those yeah. and enslaved people. You know, obviously it's it's not a one for one, but, you know, I think you can draw parallels. I mean, they beat they beat all people <laughs> on both sides white or black were beaten because nobody wanted oh, I should say there were a, a great number of individuals who were made to fight who were unwilling to fight or and the, I mean, and the or, or killed you know or killed yeah, you will you will fight or you will be shot that's the choice you have in front of you rich man because most of the people <laughs> yeah it, it was farmers it was farmers and field hands and you know, factory workers and just all all artists, you know, who were conscripted to yeah, fight on that, both sides. A, of this I battle. mean, that's another thing that we kind of um, of our generation hmm. don't have an appreciation for is the the all volunteer army is what right. we grew up with, and like our parents grew yeah. up with. Hey, guess what? The- you're the draft. specter of any given <laughs> right. moment you could you're, be you're called to, up you're going yeah. to southeast asia like no i'm not it's like oh yeah you are and you're going to <laughs> it's it's going to be bad have a nice day um like that to us is like is or canada right. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to move to canada or you're going to vietnam or, or those are two choices yeah, <laughs> yeah um, jail. my father was drafted and he said you know, i i didn't care what was going mm-hmm. on in vietnam that had nothing to do with me but he was from rural Mississippi and says, when your government calls, you go. And that's just the way it was back then. You, you didn't have the choice. It's socially. What you had to do. I've heard this from other Vietnam vets. And I, I imagine it's the same. I don't want to imprint modern sensibilities on historic context. But some of the things I've heard is when somebody's shooting at you, you don't care who's right or wrong. <laughs> you know? All you care is that you're being shot at. And that you're going to fight back, right? That's the gist of it. The Civil War is it is unique in American history because, A, it had the highest casualties of any war. It affected literally every family in the United States. There was no one who was spared. Even from the wealthiest down to the poorest, everyone had 
it imp- impacted your your family. It was also like the first real quote unquote modern war. Yeah, uh, we we saw the first trench warfare. There was uh, like the instruction of Gatling guns, which yeah, uh, so, shot yeah. all kinds of interesting so, yeah, things. Yeah, so it and yeah, and it's telegraphs changing communication, right? And and for uh, for yeah. Americans, yeah. you know, and again, like growing up, we're like it was. It's not uncommon to drive by a place where. You know, like well, there's there's a there's a state park near here that we we hike on, and there'll be like in the middle of the woods, there'll be like a post to be like, here's where New York Fifty Third whatever encamped during the Battle of whatever. You know, and it's just yeah, you know, so it's there. It's all over the south, every everywhere. I mean, just in these like you're everywhere you go. I mean, there's a battle monument for this and a historic marker for that, and it is interesting. And it, I grew up thinking it was some kind of like. I don't know, like moral crusade from the north and a misguided calculation from the south was the was the generous interpretation that was given from people around me. It wasn't ever like they were wrong and they were right. It was always like there was nuance to this. It was it was the most contextualized explanation of anything I'd ever been given, you know. My parents got divorced. I didn't get a good enough explanation compared to what I got about the Civil War, right? Like, you know, well, there were good people on both sides. I'm like, okay, what? You know, like, versus it's probably something. Yeah, it's probably yeah. my fault. Yeah. But the North, it, the North it is, divorced the South because of you, Adam. When I met folks who were not raised like that, Especially from not in the United States. So, like, I have a friend who's from Canada. They're like, no, we were clearly taught there was a right and a wrong side to this war. <laughs> like, there was no, there was no ambiguity about who was right and who was wrong here. <laughs> it was a hundred percent that the North was right. <laughs> so it, it's interesting to me because it, it took a lot of uh, a book learning to overcome that. <laughs> From my childhood, you know, I mean, and not to not to say that my parents were apologists for the South. They just didn't. It was never raised to me in a way that I should, as if it was something I should be concerned about. I guess is the way. Well, that was the culture of the South right. at that time, and you know, there was resurgence of it in the thirties, you know, the twenties and thirties, and then again in the the fifties, late fifties and sixties, then civil rights yeah. movement. That you know, that's a, as kids, that's how they were taught. It's like, oh no, this was they were. They were preserving their way yeah. of life and all that. It's like, yeah, the way way of life they were preserving was not. Yeah, right. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, there's but, certainly a direct correlation between anytime a uh, marginalized group tries to assert independence or power. Indip- right, yeah. power would be you know because being previously powerless, there is going to be that reactionary force, and and it's and interestingly the winds. How they change because you know we uh, it, in Alabama we have uh, have old Wallace who was <laughs> segregation <laughs> now segregation forever and then yeah uh, the winds of change came in he's like oh you know what I was wrong and and they like for some reason like that stuck but like looking at it through the lens of hindsight it's like man you're just a political opportunist like I don't think you yeah. you believe go as anything. the wind blows yeah. Yeah. Like which you makes know, you, and, which makes you worse in my estimation. Because you have no scruples. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's not that you it's not that you became smarter. It's not that you had a change of heart. Like, it's well, that you were 
spineless in in both instances, right? Yes. You, you know, to, uh, to, it, to you know, to that point, it's the the reason that this the glory is such an instrumental film is because it actually depicts the marginalized soldiers of the Union in a fairly realistic way. You know, we were talking about historical accuracy. The white officers did die with them at the battle. That is true. They were literally spat on and denigrated as they marched through other units of white Union soldiers. Union, mind you. That other units were like, I'll never fight alongside a black soldier. You couldn't make me. Of course, that all changed by the end of the war as numbers changed. But the climax of the movie is they lead a charge on a fort at night. The gist of it is is that they have to attack... They. This, um, oh gosh, is it Charleston? That sounds right. Charleston Harbor, South Carolina. They got to take this fort to achieve a, a tactical goal for the Union. Uh, this got to take this fort. And so Ferris Bueller volunteers his unit to do it. And, and essentially, they all die. They all get killed on the battlefield trying to take this fort. And their martyrdom is functionally what it is. Galvanizes the Union. Uh, they never take the fort, but it galvanizes the Union behind the bravery of these soldiers. Hence the glory of battle which creates the space for other units, African-American units to be formed and, and probably did change the tide of the war. Honestly, I mean, it made a huge difference in the end. It's essentially the, you know, remember the, yeah, yeah. That's a great analogy. Yeah. That's a really good. And, and for both white and black soldiers, it became these guys look, because there was a, there was a, uh, I wouldn't say common, but if you read contemporaneous letters and even uh, editorials at the time, there were a lot of folks saying something to the equivalent of, why are we dying to, to free enslaved peoples when they're not even willing to die themselves? They should – the enslaved folks in the South should take up arms. They should, be, they should be the ones leading the fight from the South, and we should be the support for that. Uh, that was a pretty common belief. You know, not it, it, the, the idea being is that we don't believe slavery as an institution is a good thing, but we certainly don't think we should be wholly responsible for ending it to save the Union. This unit and this particular loss, this battle, it took away that the undercarriage of that argument, right? It just it swept away because they're, they're, well, well, now what are you going to say, right? <laughs> Literally, this entire unit was destroyed in the pursuit of freedom. And it was important. I mean, it, it's an important uh, aspect of history. It's an important movie, too, so... Uh, just a, a bit of trivia, though. Uh, I did find out at a convention one year, uh, Ken Fourier, who is a character actor who's been working like 40, 50 years, probably best known for the original Dawn of the Dead. Adam will remember him from the remake as the, you know, when <laughs> there's no more rooms in right. hell. But he actually auditioned for the role of John Rollins, which went to Morgan Freeman. Oh, interesting. Okay. And apparently he was pretty high on the, the lists up until the last minute. So. Up until Morgan Freeman showed up. He's like, damn. George, that's what I'm about to say. <laughs> you need a man from the South to serve in this. Yeah, uh, I think I could do that. You know, He says, Morgan that Freeman the guy was, from the electric company? <laughs> he was. <laughs> What's wild is he does a little action. And Morgan Freeman does that. He has some action battle scenes in this. He is no Jackie Chan. <laughs> Morgan he was Freeman, old then. Morgan Freeman was born eighty. <laughs> That's what I was about to say. He was old then. He's old, he's old now, but he was even old back in nineteen ninety or whatever, eighty nine when this came out. It's exactly what you think it would look like. Morgan Freeman fighting would look like. <laughs> I'll, I'll look it up later and find out he was like younger than us when he filmed that. <laughs> no, I think he was. He was at least fifty. He was in Let's the find out. Hold on. Hold on. 
Because I mean, he was in his forties, I think, uh, or not forties, but his uh, early mid thirties yeah. when he did. He like, was fifty three when this movie was filmed. So, but he looks not that. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, some of us here are, can see get close. See, yeah, see we're close in the binoculars. <laughs> yes, it's, it's coming up fast on the old uh, Buster Keaton train. We're, That's we're, <laughs> we're closer to Morgan Freeman's age than we are Matthew Broderick's age. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I don't know. I think Matthew Broderick was in his forties when he did Ferris. Was Steve. he? That tracks. That Ferris, he, was, he, was, Matthew Broderick he was seventy-five. He's <laughs> <laughs> Benjamin Button in his life is what's happening here. <laughs> All right, Josh, do north and south real fast because that's, I think, is important. And then we'll wrap it up and head out. So, we were still a young nation, innocent, full of hope and promise. No small thing for a man to have a son at West Point. I'll do my best for you. But it was also a nation in turmoil, divided by two different ways of life. I will not sit down at a table with a man who chooses to keep his fellow human beings in bondage. The North, a beacon for industry and progress. The South, steeped in a proud tradition of honor. George Hazard and Ori Maine, two friends bound by loyalty, separated by heritage. Pennsylvania, Lehigh Station, South Carolina, on my way to West Point. So am I. Up on your feet, Mr. Maine. One consumed by a forbidden love. I know who you're thinking of. It's impossible. She's out of your reach now. Both destined for glory. Oh, oh, Sally, I have to go to him. I have to. He needs me. That is the one thing that you can never do. I'll try to show you what it means to be my way. Woman I love is married to somebody else. Their friendship is put to the test by a changing world. Ori, no! Don't ever interfere with us again. Or ask me to go against my own kind. You know, I obviously didn't rewatch North and South before this. You didn't spend the miniseries time on this? I'm really disappointed. He only planned this three months yeah. ago. He didn't have time. <laughs> it's, what is it? It's what, like 26 hours? I mean, that's nothing. I mean, you don't have kids or family or work or anything else going on. I, I should have done dirty work. That's, that's less than <laughs> knocked it out in a week. So, um, but like Jason mentioned, the big thing, like back when like miniseries were huge, like I don't know if, if people, not that young people listen to our show, but if you're under the age of Methuselah, then you, you, yeah. um, you will not remember a time where like the television miniseries roots, things like that were mm-hmm. like, they were, nation- it was a they were nationwide events. People, it was water cooler talk. You, everybody had to show up and watch it. Right. It, was, it was like Super Bowl well, or something. It was like, in a weird, it's like yeah. TV was different back then. They were because, on four channels. You know, the first time I saw Star Wars was mm-hmm. on NBC, especially during the yeah. summer. They would have movies and all that kind of stuff. They would have big events planned out through the years. They're usually like these miniseries. That would come out uh, like at Christmas time. A lot of times they would use uh, I can't remember the exact one, but there was a, a miniseries about you know the life of Christ yeah. that they well, would show. It, it, it's yeah, it's weird that because there's like sometimes there's there's these strange artifacts that that made it through that like you're like I can't believe that that was a big like like Twin Peaks to me is like one of those things that's just weird that like that was the world was somehow greenlit and it was yeah. like because like who killed Laura Palmer was. 
David Lynch must have laughed every day. Like <laughs> the shows on there, like, but, but in reverse and underwater, we right. laughed because that's what David Lynch would do. I have made a, a surrealist soap yeah. opera that, that gnaws at nostalgic kind of rose colored view of America and they're eating mm-hmm. it up. Anyway, so North and South was that. <laughs> I'm looking at uh, this is because I remember it from memory though. I saw this on PBS on reap on like oh, re- I, like I, I never I saw I it like this was like we ate dinner early so we could sit in front of the TV and watch it because wow. like I mean what year was this for you? I mean I guess like the, the, the eighty five eighty six one <laughs> yeah okay so yeah. I was like yeah, I was, um, eight years old or so. Okay. All right. And Patrick Swayze. I mean, that was like. Well, that's who they should have gotten to play Matthew Broderick's role. Patrick Swayze. Yeah, well, he would have done well, fine. Patrick Swayze, I remember my sister was just thought he was like, you know, the second coming. So Christy Alley was in it. David Carradine. Hal Holbrook as Abraham Lincoln. Johnny Cash as John Brown. <laughs> oh, no. I think you misread that. It had to be Hal Holbrook yeah. as Mark It was Twain. Hal Holbrook as Mark Twain as Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, oh, Robert Guillaume was Frederick Douglass. Like, I was a, I was a huge Benson fan. So, <laughs> like, I don't even know if anybody. I know, but As I don't know if anybody be. remembers Benson. Like, I don't that show Benson. was fantastic. No. Uh, Robert Guillaume was was so great. The only thing I really remember, I, I've seen it. I'm looking at it now. Obviously, uh, I'm cheating a little bit, but the third volume of it. So it was 85, 86, and then 1994 was the last volume. Right there was a long, there was a decade between releases. I think after the '94 miniseries is when it got picked up, or maybe I saw it on like VHS or something. But it got picked up and moved somewhere else to watch, whether it was PBS or something else. But that's when I saw. Yeah, I don't think the third one was very well liked. I, I think that was. I think it was pretty much seen as what it was, which was just, uh, kind of a yeah, trying to cash like, in. I, yeah. I, I vaguely remember. Like again, I, I was eight. Uh, I remember that there, there were brothers <laughs> and. You know, I remember yeah. a lot of commentary from my dad, who was a big Civil War buff. <laughs> yeah, like so, as all Southern dads were, right? But you know, uh, I guess it's, like, it's, yeah. it's like when 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 my kids try to watch Star Wars, and I'm like, well, you know, see this, uh, the job of the hood was really a, was a Scottish guy first, and then they went back and CGI. It's like it was like yeah. it was like that. There was running commentary of like, actually, that guy. Thank God he couldn't pause live TV yes. back then, right? That's all. <laughs> You'd still be watching it. Jingle Burnside <laughs> didn't have actual sideburns like that. That's a misnomer. <laughs> and uh, so they're not showing oh, camp man. followers here, but <laughs> that, is, that is a little too, uh, a little too I, real. Uh, as, yeah, because uh, we watched. I watched Lincoln with my daughter, and I paused it several times to make minutes long commentary. <laughs> She's like, "Can we just? Can we please just watch the movie, please?" <laughs> So the, the tradition continues, apparently. <laughs> when you were down here for vacation, she did talk about how hard she sighed when she walks into the living room and you have a whiteboard at the side. <laughs> what are you doing, Dad? Oh, God, we're going to watch another movie. You're going to explain how it's connected to all these other movies, aren't you? <laughs> yep. <laughs> you think, like... You think our podcasts are long and full of crap. Imagine being in the living room with one of the three of us while a movie's on the TV. That's all I got to say. <laughs> I usually just shut up and watch. Yeah, not me. I'm not talking the whole damn time unless it's, some, unless it's something that's new to me and I've never seen it before. But yeah, if I've seen this movie like eight times, 
I yeah, mean, nobody's if, happy. If you listen to this podcast, you don't want to watch movies with us. <laughs> probably don't want to watch movies at all anymore. You've killed any gonna... enthusiasm you have. You're like, oh, a film podcast. Oh, well, I hate film. I hate people that watch. I'm going to put this. I'm going to put this episode on, and I'm going to play North and South in the background <laughs> while we're listening. <laughs> Anyway, go ahead. I have vague impressions. It was, it was very soap opery. I remember remember that. It seemed to be more about the um, the family dynasty and the in the terror. I mean, very syrupy. It's like a romance novel in miniseries form. Not that I read a lot of romance novels, but the ones that do are set during the Civil War. Uh, <laughs> All the ones he writes are set during the Civil War. Yeah, they're available on Amazon. What would be the title of your Civil War romance novel, Josh? <laughs> the Bodice of Two Nations. Uh- <laughs> a House Divided, A Couple United. Is that- <laughs> We're well, all night, folks. The cr- controversial one is Brother Against Brother. But <laughs> <laughs> the Confederate in the Closet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I want to get ChatGPT to write that and throw it up on Amazon real quick. <laughs> we'll sell we'll sell dozen copies. <laughs> I'm considered the Chuck Tingle of erotic civil war literature. <laughs> oh, it's funny. <laughs> My Mason Dixon line assaulted me. <laughs> Oh, Mason, you're Dixon. <laughs> so now we're going to put the explicit. <laughs> Anywho, what was your. Uh, okay, so two points is A, is it historically accurate, and B, is it worth watching? Is That's the two things. That's, I a, that's probably a double negative. I couldn't even be bothered yeah. to watch <laughs> the, uh, the trailer. Like seeing, seeing the stills, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It. it Again, I remember more the familial. Uh, yeah, like like it, sit around. It, it was rare that we. It's character driven and not so much accuracy. Yeah, as, yeah, but as, like yeah. it was rare for like the whole family to like sit and get involved in something and discuss. Yeah, you know, I mean, we did. I mean, honestly, pretty much all the like like I remember watching Roots. That was a big musty TV thing, and then mm-hmm. there was North and South. There was lots of buzz about it, and Twin Peaks. Like I watched Twin Peaks at not much later than this with my parents, and like I think about that sometimes and say, "Man, that's kind of weird." That's <laughs> like that's- I'm curious what. Like, does your dad go? I don't know about that log lady. <laughs> like, the log lady was much loved in our house. Everybody loved the log lady. Um, yeah. Like and uh, yeah, I just think like how bizarre is it? No wonder I'm so skewed in the head. Like that you, you have <laughs> dinner conversations about. Do you think the log lady killed Laura Palmer? <laughs> my grandmother, my grandmother said something funny when I was about the time we watched Twin Peaks too uh, as a family. I lived with my grandparents, and she said, "You know, I'd really like to watch a spinoff of this from the perspective of Diane." <laughs> I've never forgotten that. <laughs> I'm like, that's not actually a bad idea. Like, <laughs> call David Lynch. 
anyway, I you know I I think we've covered everything we hope to cover. We have relitigated the Civil War. <laughs> we've relitigated the Civil War. We've decided the North was right. <laughs> we've lost things. our Southern cards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, well, we, long, long before this, I think. But yeah, that's we we went to college. So that was strike one. <laughs> We, ha- we all have to we all have to relocate to the northeast and open a bed and breakfast. A couple of other movies uh, worth I think watching. Well, a the Ken Burns documentary, which isn't a movie necessarily, but it's really good if you're looking for stuff that's factual and true and good to watch. That's one uh, less factual, less true, but also entertaining is Cold Mountain, which I enjoyed back in the day, but not enough to rewatch it for this podcast. And uh, <laughs> Cold Mountain is a mad TV sketch where they do Family Feud with Cold Mountain versus Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I'll have to look that up. Oh, dude. It's, uh, it's absolutely amazing. Anyway, that's it for us this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, the way the best way to do that is contact us at uh, brickpit at gmail.com or look us up on social media, Facebook and Twitter. Just search for the Brick Pit Podcast. And if you'd like to find us where we record, uh, that's podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show forward slash bricked pit. And on that website, you can also leave us a voicemail, which we will play on the air. So if you have comments about what we got right and what we got wrong, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time. And if you have any Confederates in your attic, please call your local ATF agent. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time, this is the Brick Pit.